Walter Balpin, Timo Nebraska, Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his fortnightly appearance. This is fortnightly appearance. He's the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. Eric Longenhagen. Eric Longenhagen is the guest. And as he does every two weeks, Eric Longenhagen endeavors here to analyze all prospects of particular note. Some debuts. Some debuts. Colorado right-hander Jeff Hoffman. St. Louis right-hander Luke Weaver. And the non-debut... He was promoted, but then immediately demoted the non-debut of Phillies catcher, former Rangers prospect, Jorge Alfaro. Additionally, some pitchers Longenhagen has seen rehabbing, returning from injury in the Arizona League. Walker Bueller was a first-round selection by the Los Angeles Dodgers in 2015. He's recently returned and has looked excellent. Dalton Jeffries was a first-round selection at the University of California by Oakland. And he has also recently returned. He looked okay. Not as good as Bueller, but okay. I ask Longenhagen to revisit some of his earliest pieces here for the 2017 draft. And finally, related to nothing that I've just said, Longenhagen provides, for those who are not familiar with Fangraph CEO, he provides a sense of the gravitas that Fangraph CEO David Appleman possesses. Every day he sits in the same seat and he his posture is impeccable. He is both physically and intellectually imposing. He's very visible, even though he's quiet and reserved at all these things. It's interesting to watch. Amusing interludes like that one. And also that specific amusing interlude in what follows. But first, allow me to take your hand and lead you through a sponsor's message. The sponsor is SeatGeek, SeatGeek.com. Are you familiar with buying tickets online? Are you familiar with the work and hassle that almost by definition accompanies that experience? I have a good authority that SeatGeek goes some way towards eliminating that work and that hassle. What they do is to pull tickets that are available on all the other sites into one place to aggregate them so that one is never left missing a deal. What they also do is to assess a grade to every ticket based on its value so that customers can more easily exploit the inefficiencies in the ticket buying market. And for what is SeatGeek famous, if not their honesty, they possess it in great volume, unlike StubHub. Unlike StubHub, what SeatGeek does is to show you the full ticket price from the beginning to the end of transaction, never administering any mysterious fees or any other sort of fees. That's what SeatGeek does. And for listening to this, you receive a $20 rebate from SeatGeek. Here's how to claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app. You go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. Enter the promo code FANGRAPHS. That's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. FANGRAPHS. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. What you should do is download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code FANGRAPHS today or your nearest possible convenience with which utterance we have completed almost the introduction we're moving on to a conversation what is it it is fangraphs audio who does it feature fangraphs lead prospect analyst eric longenhagen when does it begin right now Canadians at some point that'd be good in a Canadian accent mm-hmm. or just very politely <laughs> I guess both right I guess yeah. I'd have to put like a 55 on everything for that podcast <laughs> you gotta watch out for this Canadian scouts don't you mm-hmm. 
Do you think Scots? Wait, <laughs> is here's it is is Canada a territory for people? How does that? How does it? How is it divided up? Like, or if you're like Pacific Northwest, then you have then you go up to yeah, like, you go up to Vancouver and stuff. A lot of the, if, the 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 prominent Canadian high school prospects will play on a travel ball team, and so there are a lot of like even international scouts who will get looks at them because they'll go traverse the. Uh, the Caribbean at times. That's when Josh Naylor blew up late in uh, that spring before the draft. It was because he was he got hot against a bunch of international opponents that had you know advanced pitching. He was uh, a Canadian. He yes. remains a Canadian. He's okay. Canadian. His brother is, uh, I think, draft eligible next year as a catcher. Saw a little bit of him. Uh, what region? Recently. Well, they're they're Canadian. They're like I think they're in the. The eastern provinces somewhere that might be British Columbia. I don't know. That's Might a you, western. Oh, is it? Um, I don't know. I'd have to that's look. The, that's the you know we're gonna look right now. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do I know Canada? I don't know Canada. My geography is probably the the worst taught aspect of uh, public education in Catasauqua Area School District. Jillian and I both struggle with geography. Just wasn't a thing that we we were taught well. British Columbia is the furthest from England. Okay, so it's like, oh, I couldn't have been more wrong. Where's yeah. Alberta? I'm not looking at a map. I'm curious. Uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan. I'm not going to be able to tell you a lot about. They're just kind of those are like the western, the kind of western ones out mm. there. Um. And so that's what you're going to get. And not, not a lot happens. I think, uh, like Winnipeg is out there somewhere. Okay. Um, you know anything about Winnipeg? That's where the Jets play. Yeah. That's, a, I think that's in Manitoba, actually, which is in between there. They're all, it's the West. That's essentially, you know, that's our Midwest and really beyond it. Great Plains kind of area. A lot okay. of wheat. Uh, the Naylor family is from Ontario. So I was correct yeah. geographically, but not with where they were from. Yeah. Ontario is, uh, that spans, quite spans, but of course that's where Toronto is. Yeah, it's just south of Toronto. Yeah, I think, I believe, I do not know for a fact, but I believe that much of Ontario's population is confined to the southeastern corner. Toronto, Ottawa, mm-hmm. London, Hamilton. Have you ever been to Canada? Yeah. I, I had, uh, my dad lived in Canada as a youth. So did my bit. grandfather. For Okay. Okay. And maybe and not. He came down, huh? But yeah, he did. Back to, back to Catasauqua, where Long and Hagen's go back to the Civil War. Like we left and then my grandfather came back. So. Couldn't the uh, siren song of Catasauqua? Uh huh. <laughs> you couldn't resist it? Like a salmon to spawn. Yeah. Back to Catasauqua. But not a lot of what you're saying is not a lot of geography in that area. No, not uh I mean there's an equal amount of geography in the area itself. Uh-huh, it's just yeah. not being it's not being it's related to the young least, people. Yeah, I don't think so. Not when I was there anyway. Yeah, Canada's a bit mysterious. Actually, I was being um I was told um about a town or really an area in the northeastern tip of Nova Scotia known as Cape Breton, Cape Breton, mm-hmm. which is, 
I believe that there are still areas of it where they speak Gaelic. And there are also other areas of Cape Breton where they speak French. And it's not Quebecois French, it's Acadian French. Interesting. It's, it's, it's a little bit on the remote side, but not, it's not very, very far because Nova Scotia is uh, relatively easy to get to. I guess it's but not. It, the point is that, that like, how many, what's this? Probably, I guess it's not that, it sounds more interesting than it probably is. It's probably akin to people in certain regions of the United States speaking in certain ways. Right? It's not getting yeah. that disparate. No, but I think it's cool how they, I think they, I think they speak Gaelic because Scottish people settled there mm-hmm. however many centuries ago and they just didn't leave because it's kind of remote. But how many Canadian baseball players though, they must mostly come, I guess it makes sense they would come from the populated areas. Yeah. Toronto area. Where Joey Votto's from Toronto. Right. They're definitely players from British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, although the identities of all of them are escaping me at the moment. And then finally, um, well, of course, there are some famous Quebec wall players. I believe Russell Martin, is he not from Quebec? I think so. There are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of kids on the area code team, on the, the Northwest area code team from Canada, more than usual. Yeah. But it's, uh, generally unplumbed, I would say, right? Yeah. You go up to Vancouver, maybe you go up to Toronto. Or you wait for the, you wait for them to come to you at some some point. Yeah, the Langley Blaze is like a, another Canadian travel team that'll they'll stop down here in Arizona even for a week or two uh, during the spring. So yeah, they're they're all over the place. Those kids get seen. It's just by a whole bunch of different a, a vast collection of eyes more so than is usual. I think. Mm-hmm. I I uh, once went to a game in the Can Am League. Canadian American League, the uh, Quebec City Capitals, and I saw Ryan LaForest. Ryan LaForest, is that right? Or Pete, Pete LaForest. LaForest? Yeah, yeah. Pete LaForest was catching. I saw him hit a home run, and I saw Eric Gagne start a game. That's pretty cool. What else? Yeah, it was cool. It was cool. It was an old wooden stadium um, with a bit of a, a bit of a uh, hornet problem, I think. I've seen a lot of Canadian players over the years. Philippe Almont was Canadian. Scott Matheson, like just the Phillies, Tyson Gillies. Phillies just had a bunch of Canadian guys there for a little while. Pete Orr was in the Phillies uh, system. John Swoby. Name's a conjunction. Mm -hmm. Is that going to change your report at all on a guy if his name's a conjunction? No. I try not to. No? No. Although I do think... Guys who have whose last names are verbs, I tend to favor. Favor. <laughs> what have you been besides besides this? What have you been doing recently? This is how generally this is the foot on which we start. Eric, remember I explained this last time we spoke. It's not right. really a segment, but I say what you know. Mm-hmm. Where what, where what have, have you been? Seen? What you have you seen? Watch baseball. What baseball have you seen? And that's uh, right. And that de- de- deteriorates into a conversation about mm-hmm. something. Yeah. I've just been kicking around the AZL, just picking up targets with about a week and a half left, including playoffs now. You know, I'm, I'm sort of identifying guys I haven't seen who are priorities, even because, either because they're famous for one reason or another, or 
because their numbers are good or one of the scouts out here told me, hey, you should go see this guy. Like I'm just finding guys uh, rather than sitting on a given club for several days in a row to try to see everybody. Uh, so I've been doing that. And I went to the D-backs Braves game last night to write about Julio Tehran. So aside from that, I've just sort of been home and prepping for off-season organizational lists. What do you do? This might be, I don't know if this is an uncomfortable conversation or question or not. But, uh, for example, you probably know that uh, a few years ago, I was accidentally, um, I was accidentally inducted, not inducted. I was accepted mm-hmm. for admission into the Baseball Writers Association. You okay. know, I don't it, It's not a big deal, but my point is that I, that's if I want to go to like a D-backs game, that's, I would just bring my card. What, what's the, uh, I don't think you're officially in the BBWA yet, although no, I'm not. I, I would, how do you, you just write to their, um, do you go yeah. pre- press I'll, card? Okay. Uh, I'll either get in touch with a scout from the team and say, hey, who would I, who should I contact about this or that? Uh, and for my purposes, my first email or call is always to the ops department, not to media relations. Because if I want to go sit somewhere where I'm going to scout, uh, the media yeah. relations department can't usually help me out with that. So it's usually somebody in baseball ops who I'll contact about a scout seat. Now, the D-backs have a policy against letting media sit with the scouts, so I have to sit in a slightly augmented location. It was still tremendous. Like, they... They hooked me up. It was great. I was very thankful. Um, but uh, but like a, a media credential for a single game is more of a last resort. And then I do uh, some nefarious things to get to a place where I have to be to evaluate properly. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, that's like the la- I don't have a, a card uh, to just walk into a game. Like I do have to pick up a credential or a ticket at a window and you know go through security and all that stuff. What else besides that? What are the other obstacles? Uh, that you face, that anyone might face when scouting a major league game as opposed to a minor league game? It depends on the stadium. Uh, angles can be different at different ballparks, and the, I've found that the differences are a little more extreme in big league parks because they're built to accommodate fans. They're built to maximize revenue, not to give scouts the best look they can at the guys on the field. So, uh, there, you know, I've scouted big league games in Philly and in San Francisco and there are, it's a little bit more challenging here in Arizona. It's well, those are, these tend to be, they tend to be expensive seats, especially you sure. bring up yeah. like yeah, San like Francisco. In, I th- in, in Philly, you're back, uh, kind of high compared to where I'd want to be at like a minor league game. But in Arizona, like you're center cut front, I think you're in the first row that you can't see on television. They have like a suite area right behind home plate and there's a little retaining wall and then scouts start in that first row behind the wall. And I think you're just off camera, but you're, you're, uh, you have a great look. Like it is really good. And then, you know, the, the D-back take good care of scouts too. They have like amenities there for, for whoever's there. It's pretty sweet. But, um, but yeah, it's just sort of depends. Uh, it's not, uh, like the futures game was challenging because the center few sections are roped off for scouts, but there are clearly people who don't care and are just going to go sit there anyway and people who have actual seats in those sections as well. So you're just trying – kind of playing uh, like Russian roulette a little bit with your seat. I was 
booted from my futures game seat in like the fourth or fifth inning because someone finally showed up to to sit down in a seat where they had a ticket for. Uh, so like it's just sometimes you have to move and regroup and try to find somewhere else. But you know concessions and fans and all sorts of stuff. There's all sorts of weird that goes on. I had occasion today to think about the Diamondbacks uh, in light of their prospects. Mm. Um, they have they have a, a triumvirate of infielders who are all who are all acquitting themselves very well in that uh, in that fringe way. I don't know if I don't know. If, um, Can I guess who they are? On them. Yeah. Okay. Domingo Leyva. Definitely. Okay. Dawel Lugo? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. And uh, I'm trying to pick between two names here. What? You, what? Tell me what levels. Uh, at what level? One these guys. is is in uh, like Missoula, and the other is probably at Visalia. Okay, you're they're both too young. So it's, I'm only ever going to be considering okay. high or above just because okay. I don't have the requisite right, energy. Triple A. Triple A. Triple A. He was at the Southern League for most Reinheimer? of the Reinheimer? No. Ildemaro Vargas. Oh. Does that, mean, does that mean anything to you? Not really. What's he doing? He is – well, first of all, last year, I believe he produced the either the lowest or second lowest strikeout rate among hitters in all okay. of baseball. All of affiliated baseball. Qualified hitters. Last – um, let's see. He began the season by producing the lowest or second lowest strikeout rate across all double A among qualifiers. And now mm-hmm. currently he has produced this lowest or second lowest. If he qualified, it would be the lowest or second lowest strikeout rate. Ildemaro Vargas briefly played in the independent leagues and then, um, in the Diamondbacks doing a thing they do with some frequency. Um, found a guy that they've, they've found a bunch of guys in the independent leagues. Peralta, obviously. Yeah, they, they scouted had hard. Bo Schultz. At one point, they had a guy, Bo Schultz, who ended up with the Blue Jays, I think, in a relief capacity, perhaps still pitching there. And also, Blaine Weller. Mm-hmm. Blaine Weller was another guy. But Ildemaro Vargas is, uh, basically at this point, the starting second baseman for Reno. And, uh, roughly league average. Uh, power numbers while all, uh, while also never, you know, I mean, more or less, you know, never striking out. And this is a good, uh, combo package to have. I think he's 25 now. So he's 24, 25. He didn't really actually lose that much in terms of years because 25 is not crazy for AAA. No. No. And even if you come up at the, you know, if you sign a guy out of indie ball and he comes up and is just, you know, an empty 270 utility guy, like that's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. Right. That's good scouting. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know this a whole lot about it. Uh, but I'm, uh, that you may have just heard was me. I'm asking people who might have seen him now if they, uh. Oh, that's exciting. This is think. real time. Well, yeah, I know. Hold on. We're real time. Up. We're on the, on the front lines. <laughs> You're uh, working the phones. Yeah, I am. You know, we'll see what comes back while we're recording and I'll let you know. I'll interject yeah. if it feels appropriate. Yeah, why don't you why don't you share anything about uh, what you know? Why don't you unload your your <laughs> Go ahead, hard try drive? To find, okay, <laughs> no, your hard drive files 
um, on Lugo and Leba, both of which you nailed. And I, I think that they were promoted uh, this year, like within a week of each other from mm-hmm. high to double A. Uh, Leba, I've always sort of been off of. They're both mature-bodied guys uh, who, prob- who don't you know project to stick at shortstop or anything like that for me, or at least they're not, no doubt, shortstop types. Uh, right. Now, Lugo, I think, is basically already – the third baseman now is kind right. of what it seems yeah. like the way they're utilizing it. Uh, L- Leba is like probably like 5'11", 180, like stocky guy. Good bat to ball, good hand eye. Uh, it's just probably going to be like 30 game power because of the swing path. So it's hard to see him profiling every day at second base unless you're talking, you know, 60 plus hit, uh, which I don't think is impossible. But, you know, you're probably looking at like a, a low end regular, uh, at best as sort of like a 50th percentile type of outcome. Uh, he's interesting and, uh, you know, he's, how, how old is he? Probably like 20 now, I want to say. Like, you know, he's young for Quite someone, young, yeah. he's young for someone who's in, uh, double A. Uh, so that, yeah. that's good. And I think he's probably, he's probably, since you're bringing him up, he's probably hitting since his promotion, uh, it was probably about a month ago or, yeah, something like that. Um, Lugo is more explosive. There's more power there. There's a better chance to profile. Yeah, and I, I should say in terms of bonuses, I, so um, Leba was signed by uh, Detroit originally. Yes. Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. And, and that, he – yeah, what are you saying? I'm trying to think of what the deal he came over in was. I think it was like 400 – well, it was like, he signed for about 400000 and then he came over – from Detroit, mm-hmm. that was the Shane Green, Didi Gregorius, okay, that was Robbie like that Ray deal swap. Okay, yeah, that was yeah. that was how Labo arrived, and then and then Lugo, you're talking about, he was given I think 1.3 million. Yeah, he was a higher profile guy. We talked about him before when we talked about that signing yeah, class right. around. Right. Absolutely right. Yeah, he came over from Toronto in the Cliff Pennington deal, uh, so. It seems as though that was a, a good trade for uh, Arizona. They've got something kind of legitimate. But, yeah, like there's just more power there. There's obviously a little bit more swing and miss. He sells out for it. Uh, but I do think there's a chance for plus raw there at maturity, even though the body's kind of uh, maxed out. I think as his timing and uh, matures, that there's there will be power there. And uh, one of my friends out here, Bill Mitchell – we kick around the AZL games together a lot. He's tasked with writing the D-backs top 30 for Baseball America's prospect handbook. And so we talk a lot about Diamondbacks prospects. And he's just like searching for someone. Like he doesn't know who's going to be number one on that list like at all. He, with most of the orgs, you at least have a two or three name uh like short list that you can work off of and be like, okay, I think this guy is number one or these guys have a chance to, you know, rank atop that organization's list. And these two guys have come up uh, as we've started to talk about who might be at the top of that list, but it's really foggy right now. It's sort of unusually foggy. They have guys. It's not like a horrendous system. Uh, yeah. It's horrendous well, he in light of the... the way it's sort of been pillaged. But, you know... Once Braden Chipley graduates off the list, you know, what do you do? He, he, uh, Bill Mitchell has lost a lot of, um, potential names to whomever is in charge of the Atlanta list. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's, that's kind of how it's gone, I suppose. Uh, Yoan Lopez? Yeah, I saw Yoan last night. Yoan Lopez I uh, was the player signed well, – what? I guess he was given – he was a Cuban, given an $8 million bonus. Was he Cuban? Is he Cuban? Yes. He remains Cuban. An $8 bonus, which then put the D-backs into the penalty for international signing. They had to pay an $8 million tax, and it was seen by many the trade of not only Bronson Arroyo but also Tuki Toussaint to Atlanta uh, was seen as a – as well, essentially what, like – uh, relief for the money they had spent on Lopez. Yeah. What did you see from Lopez? He was 90-92 in his first inning of work, came out, uh, was more 92-93 in his second inning. We've seen that before from him where as his starts have gone on, he, we've seen a little bit more velocity, uh, than in his first inning. He touched 94, threw a few sliders, like 45, 50 on the slider, uh, like 77, 79. Uh, and, you know, through an acceptable number of strikes, he looks okay. He hasn't pitched very much. I want to say, uh, before yesterday, he probably hadn't thrown for like two weeks. Uh, cause I was trying to time out when he'd throw next and it got to be like a week when I was like, okay, he's got to throw tomorrow night cause he hasn't thrown in a week and he didn't throw. So, uh, I think it's been like two weeks and he's not even really around the team the AZL team, when he's not pitching, he's not, uh, you know, I've been to games and he's not in the dugout that I can see or in the bullpen or anything like that. Uh, so, you know, the situation is hard there. Uh, I think they're just trying to get him off the ground again and we'll see more during instructional league, but that's where he's at right now. There's not a whole lot to glean from it. Uh, but, uh, that's just kind of where things are. How many innings did he throw? Just two. Just the two. It was two innings or 40 pitches, whatever happened first <laughs> Okay. Yesterday. All right. Well, that doesn't sound – I mean, 92, 93 and a decent slider doesn't sound like the worst-case scenario. I don't know if it's worth – well, of course, I don't know much in the world. And in among those things that I don't know, one of them is whether it's worth all of the money and also the lack of, you know, whatever uh, – uh, you know, uh, international options that the right. team left itself with. His the and best course, anyone had ever seen him was his first, at least as far as I know, was his first start in fall league of last year. That's when he was up to ninety six with a plus slider and pounding the strike zone for the first few innings, and then he didn't look like that again the rest of the fall league. Uh, but um, it, it, yeah, it's just never been, it just hasn't been like that any other time. <laughs> so. A lot of mystery there. Now you, you, who, you said you've been covering some AZL games. Mm-hmm. I know that in a behind the scenes conversation we conducted yesterday, you mentioned that you had seen Walker Bueller, former Vanderbilt Commodore Walker Bueller. Right. Are you allowed to talk about it? Yeah. Yeah. He's, right. he's one of those guys who, as I said before, you just try to pick up late in the season because he hasn't thrown. Uh, coming into his junior year, Vanderbilt, Probably had a chance to be a top uh, 10 or 15 pick. Good college performer at Vanderbilt. Uh, and, the, you know, the season went along, and he had some starts pushed a day or two. 
uh, and just wasn't quite as good as people were hoping coming into the season. And then there were concerns about his frame because he's sort of a slight guy, he's a little undersized with a high effort delivery. And so I talked to some scouts who were concerned uh, that those two things were not going to mesh well in pro ball, given a pro ball workload, something that he hadn't experienced at Vanderbilt, where they tend to Let be cautious. Let me interrupt you briefly. Yeah. Let me interrupt you briefly. Uh, you mentioned – Slightly undersized, high effort, but good mm-hmm. results. That sounds um, like a collection of terms one might also use to describe Carson Fulmer, who was also at Vanderbilt. Or Trevor Bauer. Yeah. Was he at Vanderbilt as well? No, he no, was UCLA. UCLA. But I was trying to make a – I was trying to – I was driving towards a question regarding Vanderbilt itself. Mm-hmm. Was Is that – is it somehow – is there a reason why a, a pitcher who matches that description would end up at Vanderbilt or is that a mere coincidence? Uh, I think there's probably some selection bias with pitchers that get to college anyway, because if you're all things being equal, pro teams are just more apt to pay a kid who's six foot four than someone who's six one, and so those kids get to college. And Vanderbilt gets the cream of the crop because it's Vanderbilt, and so uh, that might be why they had a, they've had several well-to-do undersized pitchers recently, including Jordan Sheffield, who fits that mold as well. And Justice Sheffield was slated to go there too and, you know, signed before he did, but he would have been of that ilk as well. Uh, so yeah, I think that there's, that it's just more of Vanderbilt gets all these guys because they're Vanderbilt and those guys who don't sign are just more fre- frequently small than they aren't. Um, it could also just be like a short term coincidence. <laughs> uh, it, it, here's a here's a dumb question, or, uh, or at least a soft one. Mm-hmm. They, they always seem, this is, I'm sure this is bound to do something that's terrible. Uh, Vanderbilt players seem like good guys. Is that, do they, is that something on which they focus? Or am I just, is that just lies? I don't know, but it wouldn't I, surprise me. Yeah. yeah. Do, do they we, have, they have some sort of academic constraint or no? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Uh, we, we talked yesterday, did, was it yesterday or was it on a, an earlier podcast where I talked about their coach to you? I talked about, uh, about, no. about yeah, Tim, t- <laughs> Tim, Tim, yeah, Tim Corbin, who I don't know yeah, at Tim all, Corbin. but I see him at area code games and he's, oh, I think I was talking to Jillian about him. He just sits, he's at the same seat. For every game, every day, he sits in the same seat, second row back, second seat in, uh, on the left side of home plate, and he his posture is impeccable, and he's just there all day and looks super comfortable all day and not like at all antsy about having to sit for you know twelve hours of games, and he takes very diligent notes and he has a pair of spectacles that uh, like connect, they're like magnetic and they connect in the middle, and then when he disconnects them, they like hang, each lens hangs down. Uh, on his ear, like on either ear, which I've never seen before. Like he's just, he's very physically intimidating and he glad hands with parents very cut. Like he's just everything you would expect the coach of uh, the best college sports program in the country at a given sport to be. Like he embodies all of that. Uh, and it's sort of unsettling and intimidating, but also, uh, like I'm sort of jealous that he clearly has a sort of discipline and social acumen. Uh, so, but yeah, like he's, uh, he's very visible, even though he's quiet and reserved at all these things. It's interesting to watch. That's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And he also seems to have, does he have a, 
like a professorial? Is he like a baseball professor? Does uh, he seem like a baseball professor? He seems he's more like a kindly drill sergeant. <laughs> like I don't think he doesn't come off that way at all. Like he's not boisterous or loud. It's just he is both physically and intellectually imposing just in the with the way he carries himself. Yeah. Well, if you were a parent yes. and uh, your young man were uh your son were being uh, say were being pursued by Vanderbilt mm. and you were going to have a sit down with Tim Corbin, do you feel like you would feel that your son was in good hands? Yeah, I would. And not just that that touchy-feely vibe that you sort of alluded to, but I think the evidence bears out that uh, Vanderbilt takes decent care of their players. Like, people go there and develop. And I, there are probably people who are, like, you know, shouting, where you're about to talk about Walker Bueller, who as soon as he left Vandy had Tommy John. Uh, and it's not like they're immune to that sort of thing, which is true. Uh, right. But I, we're not also not talking about Rice here or, uh, you know, Stanford and their hitters. So, okay, so Walker Bueller was he, – what was mm. he in college in terms of in terms of stuff? Like a lot of 92, 93, maybe up to 96 here and there with a plus curveball. And uh, that was – those were the, the – what would be on the marquee of the scouting report. Uh, and then – what this week was 95 97 touch 98 on one gun with a 91 93 mile an hour like cutter slider type thing that uh nobody could really decide what it was because it had cutter velocity but had slider length to it uh, like it was really good uh and then that curveball is still there so he only he only threw two innings so again you know we're talking about a guy who's still essentially rehabbing but he looked really good. Uh, and the Dodgers scouting director, Billy Gasparino, was there and just elated. Like, <laughs> could not contain, uh, how elated he was with, and uh, who can blame him? Like, it was really, really interesting. And Bueller was, Bueller's coming back. As you mentioned, he's coming back from Tommy John surgery. Yeah. How, how, it wasn't, did that, how, how, he signed and then, it was revealed that he would require Tommy John. I don't know exactly how everything went down there. If they knew uh, pre-draft based on his medicals that he would need it or not. I'm not sure if they found out after if he something ripped when he was just throwing after he signed. I don't know how things shook out there, but uh, we I didn't know he needed Tommy John until after he signed. Did to what degree is information shared? I mean, there there is some baseline of of um, information that needs to be shared among mm. major league teams, which is partially why the Padres recently, um, what upset, uh, well, the Marlins specifically, I suppose, although it seems like other teams, yeah, the Red Sox as well. Yeah, it seems like the Red Sox were not, uh, given full disclosure about some of the Pomeranian stuff. Right, right. And then, and it was Colin Ray was the, was the one who, the pitcher who actually injured himself, right? Or mm. got injured or was injured already. I was receiving uh, more extensive treatments than the Padres had suggested. Um, but what, what is the what is the expectation, so far as you know, uh, between major league organizations and college programs in terms of the sort of information that those college programs are 
either obligated to share uh, or just expected to share in order to stay, uh, you know, in the good graces of organizations and help their players get drafted? Uh, I don't think it's, I don't think it falls on the colleges. I think teams have their own doctors do a lot of work. I know the bureau is in charge of collecting a lot of data. Uh, and even like things like submitting to drug tests and stuff like that is that's all sort of done through the bureau. Uh, medical stuff is, I know there are a lot of people who wish there was some sort of pre-draft combine and some more uniform way of collecting medical information. Cause I do think a lot of it deals with team specific exams after the draft. There's not a whole lot uh, that gets tossed around pre-draft unless I guess it's asked for. Uh, it's not something I know a whole lot about, uh, but I know that teams do involve their own doctors a lot. And I have never heard of colleges being required to provide anything uh, on behalf of the player. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. I'm not upset about it. You also seen, you've also seen, uh, who, because uh, you mentioned that there, I think there are more than one guy down there who's, uh, just making his initial appearances. Walker Bueller. Oh yeah. And uh, Dalton Jeffries. Dalton Jeffries. I think mm-hmm. from Cal. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Cal Wrighty, who's another guy who was hurt this season. Uh, and Cal sort of misled. Scouts in the media about what exactly was wrong with him. They said it was a hamstring issue when it turned out to be his lat. Uh, but he was fine for me, uh, in his, I think he's made four or five appearances now, like 91, 94 with a frisbee-ish slider, really just sort of a one plane wiping slider rather than something that dives, uh, down and away from hitters. And his changeup was his best pitch in, in college and it's, it's, Flash plush, it's it's still really good. Uh, so yeah, he, he looks fine too. Uh, like everyone just sort of looked fine. Club? For what club? Is he Oakland. Blind? Oakland. Oakland. Yeah. Okay. Oakland. Hmm. Yeah. Old Oakland. One of their several college draftees from the area. Let's see. Oh. Uh, speaking of college draft, you recently wrote about Jeff Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff Hoffman, who I believe we were recording this on a Friday. Jeff Hoffman's actually starting tonight as well. Yeah, uh, it'll yeah, be a second him. major league start uh, for the Colorado Rockies. The first one did not go particularly well, if no. I'm not mistaken. I did not get to see it. But, yeah, I I put a pretty big number on him when I wrote his call-up piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's he's just a guy who I've seen since – college who I'm very comfortable uh, about my optimism for mm-hmm. and yeah you, you you like him quite a bit I do yeah and I know we were at the point where I sat and uh, actually woke up the next morning after I submitted that piece and was like should I take the the overall grade down like a half grade? Because it felt just felt aggressive to do, but like I just sat back and looked at everything, and I was like, okay, I, this guy throws this hard. It doesn't really move, but uh, it's it's hard, and uh, there's some evidence to spin rate impacting swing and miss, 
which I think, you know, at this point is something that should be considered if I know anything about it while these guys are prospects. And with Hoffman, we did because of what happened at the Futures game. So I felt comfortable projecting the, the fastball aggressively, even though it doesn't have a whole lot of movement to it. And I think the slider is going to come and be plus. I think the, the curveball already is. And I think he's athletic and the changeup, if not already there, is at least going to be average to above. And he throws plenty of strikes. Like that, that guy is a, or approaching a top of the rotation type of starter there. And as I said in the piece, I think the discourse about the quality of the fastball, fastball is valid. And it's going to be interesting to see how it plays, especially at cores. But, you know, just looking at the, the stuff, it's, it was hard for me. Like I woke up the next day and I just thought, you know what? I think this guy is this good. So. And you're going to, yeah. Well, obviously, uh, one start, uh, one start does not uh, determine. Well, sure. Uh, right. But it still sucks. Like, you, you know, you write that thing and you, you sort of, you know, become, you put, put yourself out there a little bit when you're declaring someone to be like a top of the rotation type of arm. And then when he goes out and has a hard, you know, crappy first start, like, it wasn't fun to sit there and like watch his, the box score at what, every game I was at that night. Yeah, he, uh, <clears throat> what he, um, he was facing the Cubs in Coors Field. Yeah. So it's not really, it's not an ideal scenario because I believe the Cubs, if not the top, at least have the second best offense right now. The Red Sox might be better in terms of park adjusted, whatever, but, uh, still not a, still not a, a pleasant draw. Yeah, now he's uh, the Nationals you. tonight, so doesn't get much not easier. A ton, not a ton better, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, that's uh that is tough. But uh, given your description of him, you, you, obviously you said the the velocity in the fastball is great, uh, if not necessarily uh, the movement on it. And then um, you seem to indicate that the that the curveball is his best secondary. That mm-hmm. might be, as you mentioned, uh, might be hamstrung a bit or might be limited in its effectiveness because of course. But do you think that the slider has a chance to replace it as mm-hmm. the go-to secondary? Yeah, he it's he's been working with it more often uh lately. I think I don't know, I guess probably since he had been acquired by Colorado. And it's just, you know, it's come out more often now as a swing and miss uh put away pitch while the curveball has sort of become uh something that he can throw within the zone for a strike that's hard to hit just because of, you know, its quality and its depth. Uh but it seems that the slider uh, has, has become or is becoming something that's more used in pitchers counts to, to finish hitters off. And I think we'll see more of that as he goes. Yeah. Or do you think you'll be watching tonight or do you have some, wait, did you say that you went both to a D backs game yesterday and also you saw someone else start? I feel like you did both. Uh, did I know that the, the D backs game was Wednesday. I did mm-hmm. go to, to, I mean, you can go to multiple games out here right now because the games that have to be made up because of haboobs or, you know, the odd rainstorm, uh, those get made up at like five and then regular AZL games will start at seven. So you can like start with a six inning game somewhere at five and then find, find your way to another ballpark at seven here though, right now. Uh, but not yesterday. I didn't do that yesterday. You did that really well. 
How many games are you going to do tonight? I, I might watch Hoffman. Uh, I might watch the Panthers Patriots preseason game, and Jillian has a soccer game tonight, so I'm going to go to that. And oh, she's playing her. She herself is playing. Yeah, it's her first one. She joined an adult indoor soccer league with some of the other teachers at her school, uh, and she's very competitive. So it'll be interesting to see how uh, her peers handle that tonight once they learn that. Uh, but. Yeah, I'm excited. Is it, uh, is, it a, is it a constructive competitive streak or, or is it a... Not always. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. It can be, uh, but uh, she played in high school. She's the goalie, so she'll be the goalie tonight too. And She suffered many concussions in high school, so I'm part of why I'm going is to make sure that doesn't happen without me there. The, actually, it's. I guess it's better... Um, I mean, keepers are sort of loud group anyway, and maybe uh, emotionally unstable. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's uh, let me ask you about Luke Weaver. Okay. Yeah. He also debuted recently, and uh, well, you had something to say, uh, I guess, about him and Alex Reyes. Alex Reyes, I feel as though we've addressed uh, with something approaching sure. thoroughness. And uh, this is going to be a common refrain now as you bring up Weaver. We've talked about Hoffman, and you'll see it in my piece on Julio Tehran as well. Uh, and it's not something I've sort of consciously realized that come up a whole lot in the stuff I've written lately, but now that you've mentioned Luke Weaver, it has. That I've been talking a lot about fastballs beyond just how hard they're thrown, and that comes up in that Luke Weaver piece as well, I think, doesn't it? Uh, what do you want me to remember? No, I don't know. I don't. Know. I, don't. Sure. I wrote it. Let's say it does. <laughs> Let's just say it does. Say it. Well, what do you want to say? Luke Weaver is a uh, is a Cardinals pitcher. Yes. Throws with one of his hands, probably the right the right hand. Yeah. Throws with the right hand and is uh was recently promoted uh, oh. to the Cardinals. I think he also starts on this very night. This is I. This is good because I'm recording you the on the eve of um, you know these these starts essentially, mm-hmm. and so that whatever you say about the respective pitcher uh, can be uh, will verified. be perverted by reality sure, to yeah. some degree. Well, verified or negated, yeah, that's the problem. Uh, Weaver actually has uh, not been bad. Um, he I don't know what he's given up in terms of runs, but he's uh, generally controlled things. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hasn't, he hasn't been just, you know, he hasn't broken games wide open or games have not been broken up against him. Uh, where, where is, where is he from? What's his, uh, his pedigree there? Florida State. Okay. Florida State righty, uh, performed very well as a freshman and sophomore at Florida State and then thinks his junior year sort of backed up a little bit. So he was seen as probably a top 15 or 20 pick entering his junior year and just wasn't quite as good as a junior. Uh, is there any, was it just a lack of sharpness? Was yeah, that the like, idea or? Uh, the velocity ticked down a little bit and the breaking ball did not come along. He was fastball change up in college and the breaking ball was just sort of like a 40, 45 and you'd hope, okay, it's a junior year. Now let's see some more power to this breaking ball. And it just wasn't there. Uh, so right. now and I'm looking, looking I'm, yeah, I'm looking at his numbers from, from that sophomore year in particular. He had a hundred more strikeouts than walks, which is, I mean, that's nigh impossible in college. And that was a roughly a hundred innings. That's, yeah, that's an impressive season. Too. Yeah. So, right. uh, yeah. So seen as a 
good athlete with two pitches, the third of which is maybe a little bit harder to develop because it's a breaking ball and that's not necessarily something that is developed as easily as other pitches. Uh, you know, his stock kind of took a little bit of a hit. Still, you know, was like a late first round pick, uh, and has performed. But things are a little different now. He's working with a cutter now. Uh, so I think he's got like a four, four, full four pitch mix with a curveball, a cutter, the fastball, and the changeup. And, uh, reviews on the cutter, which is new, are tremendous. But he's, uh, you know, it's another guy who's sort of, he throws hard. But because of the drop and drive and the delivery, the fastball comes in kind of flat. So you wonder how quality of the fastball is going to play uh, because of factors other than the velocity, which we right. discussed with Hoffman and was something that uh, I, I'll, you'll see in my Tehran piece is sort of uh, present as well. But yeah, Weaver's it's not a go ahead. It's not a it's not a sort of fastball that would typically receive the praise or, 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 or what. Uh, well, Weaver, no, Weaver throws receiver. hard. Like I've seen him up to ninety seven, but it just comes in flat because when you if you're how tall is Lou Weaver? Like six two. If you drop and drive real low off the mound, you're getting a nice hard push off the mound, which isn't necessarily important for fastball velocity, but it at least helps with extension and probably drives your body toward home plate in a way that allows you to throw strikes. Like there are aspects of it that are good, but you're you're just to drive that hard off the mound, you have to get down low, and so you're not pitching with any plane anymore, unless you're so tall that you naturally still have it, like you Darvish does, but. Uh, like with Julio Tehran last night, when you drop and drive real hard off the mound and you're only throwing 89-92, you better be able to locate. <laughs> and if you don't, what happens is what happened to Julio Tehran last night where he gave up 11 hits over six innings. Luke Weaver has a little bit more margin for error because he touches 96. Uh, so, it, you know, that's the sort of thing that I... I think it's hard to know how things are going to play because the radar gun might tell you one thing, but the way the pitch comes in might be easier to elevate or if you make a mistake, you might get hurt more than if you didn't throw so hard or if, you know, your fastball did have playing. Like there's just a whole lot of variables that impact fastball effectiveness beyond just how hard it is. Although I It do, seems to me that, that and, and perhaps this has been borne out in research, if you, if you do have this sort of drop and drive, um, um, if you have a drop and drive mechanics, it might it might make sense to work towards the top of the zone mm-hmm. where where the plane. Because if you're attempting to go down into the zone, then it seems like you'd spend a lot of time in the bat path. Sure, your fastball would. Yeah, Whereas I if you're going understand up, that. Up high, there's almost a there's almost a, a, a throwing upwards effect to mm-hmm. that. That that might make it difficult for batters. I don't know if, if you go if you went through like the pitchers who are successful without much velocity at the top of the zone, like Marcus Marco Estrada, um, if he does something like that, or if you just start with pitchers who have a sort of more smaller pitchers who have a drop and drive delivery and uh, where they're most successful mm-hmm. in terms of their their pitch location. Yeah, that'd be interesting to look at the. I mean, I guess the extreme example on the other end of the spectrum would be Chris Young, right, who works up and is also a huge guy, but right. who probably has some significant drop and drive. 
but yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it is. Um, I think it's something that teams are probably more well versed in than than I am. Certainly, it's probably you know they have a good. You're allowed idea. to say that. that that's yeah. fine to say that. Because <laughs> Chris Young doesn't have drop and drive as much as he's a spinal tilt guy, though. Now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. The spinal tilt. Mm-hmm. Like Michael Waka, the guys who sort of have like three quarters arm angles that play like they're straight over the top because of the way they sort of angle their torso during delivery. Yeah, they get their bodies out of the way. Uh-huh. Yeah, they kind of bail with their body and then the arm comes and replaces the body. Lincecum? Tim Lincecum? Yeah, he'd be like another sort of extreme example of that. A guy who... Tell, yeah. Yeah, Waka is, is another... Where it's clearly visible. I'd like to watch Michael Walker pitch now and uh, refresh my memory with regard to that. I'm making a note of that. Can I ask you about Jorge Alfaro? Sure, yeah. This is the last individual guy about whom I wanted to ask you. Then I have okay. a question about high school catchers after that. But with regard to Jorge Alfaro, I believe well, whether he's making his debut or Today uh, or not is immaterial. I believe he's being promoted, though, yeah. following the trade of uh, Carlos Ruiz. Uh, For A.J. Ellis. Yeah, oh. Ellis hasn't reported yet. So the Phillies have three guys on the 40-man that can catch. Ellis, Cameron Rupp, and Alfaro. So Alfaro, it seems just like he's going to be up for three or four days before he goes right back down once Ellis okay. gets you know into Philly. When he arrives. Alfaro, I believe – is regarded, <clears throat> at least as having, if if not a complete defensive catcher, at least as having promising defensive tools. Yeah, that's how I would describe it, yeah. Okay, and then there are questions about the offense, at least in terms of, uh, I'm stealing most of this from Chris, Chris Mitchell, uh, uh, who wrote about him today mm-hmm. at the site. And, uh, but the, and then on the offense, maybe uh, there's some good, uh, power on contact, but the actual making contact part uh, is also proved a bit puzzling for Alfaro at times. Mm-hmm. Where's he from, Alfaro? Was he was he part of that same draft class, the Dalwell Lugo draft class or uh, international class? Oh, I don't think he was that. Uh, maybe he was. I don't know. It doesn't I'm not matter sure when he was. I mean, like when he arrived stateside, he you know was a sensation here in Arizona. Uh, he was one of those. I think he was of the AJ Preller era in Texas, one of the international signees. He's Colombian. Uh, so he's, and his brother is actually down in the AZL, or at least he was, I think. But, uh, but yeah, like, it's a seven rocket arm. If not an, it's an 80 arm. Like, it's crazy arm strength. Uh, and he was always remarkably athletic for a catcher. Someone who, had they been born in the United States, would probably have ended up playing college football somewhere like that kind of athlete and that sort of explosion. And yeah, he's always just had issues with it, with his approach and with swinging and missing, but there is, as you said, good power on contact. It's like plus raw power. And some of the other aspects of his game are raw and remain that way. Some of uh, the defense, the receiving and uh, blocking ball sometimes can be, can be frustrating. I think we're at the point now where I think it's okay to say the approach is always going to be kind of an issue. And the bat path is going to is going to sort of cannibalize some of his ability to make contact. He loads his hands really, really high, but still is geared for power. And so it takes the bat to get into the hitting zone. A little while to get into the hitting zone. It's not in there very long. You know, he's he's very interesting. 
it's still kind of hard for me to tell you what kind of player I think he's going to be because the tools are very exciting, especially for a catcher. But, uh, but yeah, the approach is kind of an issue. Well, in theory, I don't know. He doesn't have to be, I guess it depends what, what the expectations are too, right? Because mm-hmm. it, I mean, he doesn't necessarily have to do much with the bat. Um, if he's going to be an adequate catcher, you know, I mean, it right. doesn't really, re- doesn't require a lot. So perhaps, uh, there's room for him to, um, there's room for him to acquit himself. Uh, I, I, not poorly, but, uh, it, in what might be considered a disappointing fashion relative to some of the most glowing reports while still also, uh, becoming a totally uh, useful catcher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He could That's be an all star. He might hit 240 and it's weird, but I like him. I like guys like this. These are the sorts of players that interest me. You mean where the uh, the outcomes seem pretty diverse? The, poss- yeah. the prop- possible outcomes seem diverse. I mean, we sort of thought some of the same stuff about Gary Sanchez too. At you know, at one point, there was there's more playable power there, but the rest of the skill sets are are pretty similar. Alfaro's a better athlete, but uh, but plus plus Sanchez has plus plus arm strength and uh, plus raw power, but has approach and swing and miss, it, miss issues as well as uh, issues with receiving and blocking balls in the dirt and those. Uh, aspects of catching that you'd like to see from someone who plays there every day. And he's been fine, you know, and, uh, I think Alfaro will probably end up having sort of a similar, uh, impact. Hmm. Uh, at least it'll work, it'll work this, the same way. Now, I do want to ask you one, one last question. Um, mm-hmm. and perhaps this sort of, uh, this discussion about Alfaro will serve as a, uh, as an, an aperitif. As a as a uh, an amuse bouche to uh, to to your answer, or at least you've maybe created a foundation upon Is which. Is that you build. Quebecois French? I don't know. No, amuse bouche. I think that's French French. Yeah, but you mentioned during you you've written a couple of reports now on early lurk, looks at the 2017 draft. Mm-hmm. You covered uh, left-handed pitchers, and then you uh, more recently you covered catchers, and you make a comment at the beginning of your catcher's piece to this effect. You say high school catching is often one of the draft's most fruitless positions, uh, and 2017 looks average in that way, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm curious as to, um, what, why you, why you suppose that might be. And if you need to, to, uh, steal any of your, um, comments from the conversation about Alfaro, that seems like it would be a reasonable thing to do. Uh, I think catching prospects in high school are difficult to find with any sort of polish that scouts can feel comfortable and enthused about. Um, I also think high school baseball in general sticks the best athletes at other positions where they can impact the game in a way that catchers don't end at the high school level. You can kind of stick, you know, like... You can stick a fat kid behind the plate and he can sort of act as a retaining wall for your for pitcher. <laughs> but your best athlete is going to play shortstop or uh, or be pitching or in center field somewhere. And those players, some of them eventually trickle down the defensive spectrum and try their hand at catching. It's how we got Carlos Ruiz. It's how we got Tony Walters. It's how we'll get dozens of other catchers uh, during both of our lifetimes. It's just the way things happen. Uh, I also think that high school pitching 
it's it's rare for a high school catcher who's a prospect to be on a, the same team as a high school pitcher who's a prospect. And evaluating a high school catcher who's catching someone throwing 74-78 is hard. Uh, and I think historically we've seen high school catching prospects bust at a rate that exceeds many other positions and that teams shy away from them because of that as well. What causes that? I don't know. It might be some shades of what I've just described about just how hard it is to evaluate them. Uh, and there are probably other factors as well. But, uh, but yeah, there, it's, it's rare to find a high school catcher that everyone is in love with and comfortable with taking in the first round. And even if there are those guys, they usually go in the first round because they can also hit. And because of how long it takes to develop a catcher's defense throughout the minor leagues, those players often just get moved to an outfield corner or to third base or somewhere like Bryce Harper was so that they can just hit and get to the major leagues faster than they would if they were forced to develop catching for years and years and develop rapport with pitchers and learn how to call games. Like there's a lot that goes into it that would have hampered catching prospect X's development when he could just be playing first base and hit 300 and be in the major leagues in a couple of years. So well, going back to Alfaro, why do you suppose he ended up at catcher as opposed to say right field? You know, if he's, if he's got a great arm, right? Uh, does he just lack athleticism, the athleticism to play in the outfield? Or no, he is something else? I think that that was that's been uh, discussed <laughs> specifically about Alfaro. Was like maybe this guy will play right field one day because he runs well enough to do it. Um, but uh, he has played some first base throughout his career. I don't think since he's arrived uh, with Philly though that he has. Uh, I think it's just you give the guy every opportunity to succeed at a premium position until he proves that he can't. And mm-hmm. while aspects of Alfaro's defense have been raw and frustrating, it's never been so bad that people have said, this guy just can't catch. It's done. Move him somewhere else and get it over with. Uh, he's always been far too tantalizing to breed impatience. I was going to I was going to cite that word, the in, in particular the arm speed it sends or the um, yeah. the, the, the the arm. It's tantalizing. Even there are times when his footwork is messy and his uh arm swing will be long and he'll still you know be 19195 down to second base because his arm strength is so incredible. Uh so yeah, and also his arm the other, the other thing that has probably stopped the Rangers uh, and Phillies from ever seriously considering moving him full-time is because of what I described before, where you're more apt to move somebody who's hitting, whereas Alfaro has also had some, some contact issues at the plate, so it's not like his bat is super advanced and you're, he's ready for the big leagues in that respect, and you'd have some sort of motivation to move him. Uh, they could, uh, they've always been able to sort of play things slow. Hey, Eric. Mm-hmm. You've really acquitted yourself well here. Are we done already? It doesn't feel like we did very long. It was an hour. All right. Is that fine? That's fine with me. I feel I got a little. I got a, a pang of anxiety. Why? Because I I haven't because I recorded. You know Sam Miller. Yeah, I mean I don't know him, but noted, I know who he is. Noted author Sam Miller. Mm. 
He, I recorded a conversation with him on Monday, and I still haven't gotten it on the site. Okay, it's been it's been lingering. Remember how we talked yesterday? I was a little anxious. Yeah, I was thinking about that in addition to other things. I was thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I got to get it up on the site. You'll get I got to get up and say. And he's angry about it. No, he's not. Come on. He's been sending me text messages. He said, I recorded with you on Monday. Where the fuck tell, is it? You can tell Sam and you can edit this out if you want. You can tell Sam that uh, I've done guest stuff for BP that like I spent a long time working on that hasn't even been published there. So they can, they've taken their time with that. You can take He's not, he's not angry. I know he's, he's not, not angry. angry. Neither am I. I swear. <laughs> hey, huh. you fulfilled your obligation. Eric Longenhagen. Carson, it's been a pleasure it. talking to you. Yeah, it's been you, a pleasure. Okay. Do you, what? Hmm? I enjoyed okay. talking to you as well. Let's, um. Do you have other stuff to do? Why? What do you want to, you want to talk? I guess we could. I haven't talked, I'm just at home. I haven't talked to anybody else all day. I've tried to clean my pool and I'm, I've talked to you. And. Well, I, I, let's, let's, let's finish the program first and then we can Ooh. talk to each other. I'm sorry. I so thank you, you, Eric. You're welcome, Carson. It's been Eric Longenagan, led prospect analyst, fangraphs.com. Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio.